This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. In the last few years, intellectual property has been, well, interesting in a way that it really can't ever be said to have been before. With the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, the controversies over things from digital rights management to seed patents, and people's diverse reactions to the new landscape of ownership, we've been thinking way more about this stuff. For people like James Boyle, that means thinking about how intellectual property law both adds to the quality of our lives and detracts from it. Boyle's my guest this week on Fordham Conversations. He's the author of the book, The Public Domain, Enclosing the Commons of the Mind, from Yale University Press. That book is the winner of the 2008 Donald McGannon Award for Social and Ethical Relevance in Communications Policy Research from Fordham's McGannon Communications Research Center. In that book, Boyle looks at the origins and basics of intellectual property law and how it's changed in the face of developments like the internet. Later on the show, we'll look at how you can avoid having your summer ruined by mosquitoes. But first, I spoke to James Boyle earlier this week. James Boyle, thanks so much for talking with me today. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, let's start from the beginning, because that's where you start in the book. What is intellectual property, and why do we need it? Intellectual property is um, more familiarly known. Things like copyrights, patents, trademarks. It's the property rights that the state creates over things that are intangible, whether it's the, the name Dove to refer to a certain kind of soap, or whether it's the copyright over Harry Potter or over a movie that you've just been to see, or whether it's a patent over a drug. Why we need it is the idea that these are um, goods which are easily copied, easily reproduced. The idea, therefore, is that the state will give a limited monopoly over the movie or the book or the drug or the trade name to an individual and design it very carefully so that it's not too broad and not too long and not too extensive. And the idea is that we as the public benefit. We get the drugs, we get the books, we get the movies, and we get brand names we can trust. And the basic idea of the system is pretty good. So in granting this sort of temporary monopoly, you allow the person who invented the thing to profit from it, but then you open it up to public knowledge after that. Absolutely. And in some cases, even before that. So for example, when you patent something, you're supposed to disclose immediately in your patent uh, registration exactly how you've made it. It's just that nobody else can uh, use that to make the same identical uh, innovation for another 20 years. So the idea is... Uh, innovation, and, and ideally not just innovation immediately in dissemination of information, but the idea of, of certainly copyright and patent is that the material will make its way into the public domain so that all of us can build on it, so that we can make West Side Story out of Romeo and Juliet, so that we can build on the scientific advances of the past and make the scientific advances of the future. And so in that sense, uh, you could say that sort of the public domain is supposed to be intellectual property's destiny. What isn't intellectual property? What does it not encompass? Well, <clears throat> the whole point of intellectual property is to sort of in, in, encourage this kind of innovation, of, whether in culture or science. And so it's very important that we be just as careful about the stuff we don't cover as the stuff we do cover. The, the holes are just as important as the cheese, as it were. So um, you're not supposed to be able to patent ideas scientific formula. You can't patent E equals MC squared or force equals mass times acceleration. You can't uh, copyright an idea either. You, if, if your idea is that there's been a giant conspiracy uh, running through the history of Christianity, you can't own that idea. You can own the very successful novel that you build around it, but you can't own the idea. And you can't copyright facts. So 
the the unoriginal compilation of numbers in a white pages telephone directory. You can't get a copyright over that. So the the facts below and the ideas above are supposed to go immediately into the public domain, and it's only the realm of protected expression in between the the novel that you made out of those ideas and those facts that actually gets uh, covered by the intellectual property right. Why would people want to copyright that stuff, and why is it a very bad idea too? Profit is one reason, and also artistic control. We want to control as much as we can uh, about our creations. I'll give one example that maybe makes it concrete. Gone with the Wind is the second best-selling book in history, apart from the Bible, uh, at least in the English-speaking world. Alice Randall was an African-American novelist who grew up thinking there's something missing in this story, namely the perspective of the African-Americans. And so she wrote um, a book called The Wind Ungone. Amazingly enough, Gone with the Wind is still under copyright. And this is one of the things that's happened. Copyright terms have extended and extended and extended. And Margaret Mitchell's heirs tried to prevent the publication of that book. They said, we own this notion of these characters and this setting and Tara, and you are using them. You are trespassing on our property. The district court judge thought it was like driving a bulldozer across somebody's lawn. And finally, when it got to an appeals court, the appeals court said, no, this is fair use. That's an exception to copyright. It's parody because the whole point is this is actually taking aim at this material that was covered by the copyright and making something new out of it, transforming it, telling the story from a different side. Why did Margaret Mitchell's estate want to control that? Partly for money, but mainly, I think, because they wanted their image of Gone with the Wind to be the one that was presented. They only wanted their side of the story, so to speak, to be the one that was told. And the court in that case said, no, here we have an exception to intellectual property. We can't let you reach that far. We have to allow people to parody, to criticize. And that's just a, a really nice example of how we're always having to limit these rights, even though we want to hand them out. And my book is all about the dangers that occur when we forget those limits, when we extend copyright too long, cover new things with patents, impede the form of new, uh, the development of new mus musical forms and new technologies. It's really about what happens when we forget that balance that lies at the heart of intellectual property. You gave at the beginning of the book a description of intellectual property sort of in its ideal form. Does it work like that today, and how and how not? No, it doesn't. Um, in the book, I describe, you know, the story of, of encouraging, you know, with this very limited monopoly, encouraging the development of culture and of science um, with these tightly tailored monopolies that basically just give enough incentive to encourage the production and no more. And of course, that's not what happens. Um, we've extended the copyright again and again and again so that it now lasts for the life of the author and then an additional 70 years beyond that point. Uh, that's just really been a tragedy. There's no real economic reason for it. Um, 95, 98% of works lose all of their commercial value after a very short period of time, certainly no more than 10 or 12 years. In most cases, there are obviously exceptions, you know, the blockbuster film and so forth, but we could allow those works to renew. And instead, we automatically cover everything by copyright. And what that means is it's locked up. And most of it is commercially unavailable and yet still under copyright. Indeed, a huge amount of it, you don't even know who the copyright owner is. But what we've done is lock it up so that our, we can't and our children can't and our children's children in some cases can't get access to it. We've put our own culture off limits for no good reason. That's really a deviation from the goal of copyright and the ideas of intellectual property. It's an erosion of the public domain. It's one of the tragedies I talk about in the book. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. I'm talking this morning with James Boyle about his book, The Public Domain 
That book's the winner of this year's Donald McGannon Award for Social and Ethical Relevance in Communications Policy Research. In a few minutes, we'll talk about how you can avoid having your person impinged upon by horrible biting insects. But first, let's hear the rest of my conversation with James Boyle. I asked Boyle to tell me about exactly how the Internet fits in with all of this. Well, if you think about the way that the Internet works, the Internet is a commons in all kinds of ways. It's built on a common set of protocols. So you don't really think about this when you're using it. But the difference between the Internet and some proprietary system, old systems like CompuServe or Minitel, those were systems that were owned and controlled by a single company or single government. They had very limited functions. You controlled who could get on. You controlled what they could do. There was a terminal, could only do a few things. Um, you controlled who had access to it, both on the, uh, in terms of uh, getting the service, but also in terms of what was put on there. It was a tightly controlled service. It was effectively owned. It was a, it was a property realm. The Internet, in its design, is a commons. Anyone can connect to it, so long as they have the, the basic bandwidth. The stuff is distributed in the form of packets. It doesn't discriminate. It doesn't know whether your packets contain text or cookie recipes or streaming video or some new technology we haven't even thought of. And anyone can receive that on the other end. So it becomes this platform, this common space that all of us can innovate on, can share material on, can develop new products and new ideas on. And so if you think back, those of your listeners who are old enough to remember those controlled systems, you would never have seen the kind of dynamic innovation that is represented by things like Twitter, that is represented by uh, things like Google Maps, where you have lots of different layers of information added. The internet is this wonderful area because we basically built a set of common protocols and standards and technical delivery mechanisms and say, okay, there it is. Now you guys go play with it, figure it out. And it's precisely because it isn't owned and controlled that it has succeeded. Freedom has its own generative power and the internet illustrates it beautifully. Since the internet, or actually, I want to say since slightly before the internet, copyright law has changed pretty significantly. That's in the last 30 years or so. How and why has it changed? What it's really done is it's got longer. That's the most obvious thing. So we've gone from the system which was said you've got a copyright for 28 years. Um, and then if you really want it, you can renew for another 28 after that. And about 85% of people didn't bother renewing, which is really strong empirical evidence that that's, for most people, that's all the copyright term they needed. And now we have this automatic term of life plus 70. It covers more material. It covers it in ways that it didn't cover it before. Um, now we have, uh, when you uh, download a song from iTunes and it's protected by digital rights management, if you attempt to get around that, even if it's just to make a backup copy that you know, you've now, your, your computer's crashed and you've exceeded your limit of copies and you try and do it, you, you're breaking the law, even if what you do when you get the other side of the digital fence is fair use, even if you want to take that DVD and, and take excerpts from it and show that you think the director is anti-Semitic, a, a classic sort of fair use uh, commentary for scholarly purposes, breaking through that digital fence will break the law. And we've also, we've tried to build um, technology, the law into the technology itself. And this is, I think, the next wave of, of copyright reform, which is basically to make it not just illegal, but impossible to do certain things. So requiring that computers, for example, have certain kinds of technologies inside them, which would allow the content providers to specify exactly how their material is to be used and how not, which sounds unobjectionable. You think, well, you shouldn't be copying this stuff anyway. But of course, then you think about it, you think, well, they might actually want me to do a whole bunch of things that stop me doing a whole bunch of things that aren't illegal, whether it's commenting on it or fast forwarding through the FBI notice on the DVD. 
they might just like to control my behavior, and this would allow them to do that in ways that are both anti-competitive and kind of troubling. So I think those are the main uh, areas in which copyright law has been expanding. One thing I was interested in about that was the fact that you no longer have to say that you want your things to be copyrighted. It just happens automatically. Yeah, it's a fascinating idea. I mean, it's sort of equivalent. Imagine that you sort of got patents sort of just by passing through life, and suddenly you get this 20-year monopoly that uh, every every little uh, note that you write down that has any minimal degree of, of creativity, every photo that you take, every home movie, these things are all automatically copyrighted. And this produces a, tr- a separate tragedy um, because most of this stuff, you know, you're, you're creating it and you're actually perfectly willing to share it. Think of all the things that people share on the Internet. And in the old days, if you didn't put the copyright notice on there, that meant the material passed immediately into the public domain so anyone could use it. So if I can get access to your Super 8 uh, home videos of segregated um, life in the South, um, the African-American family making videos of segregated life in the South, I, you know, no copyright notice on it, I would have been able to use it and make it in my documentary. Now I find it, it's like, hey, this is copyrighted until, you know, 2010, 2020. Um, and there's no way that I can use it. And so um, I say, well, let's find the uh, the owners of copyright and, and get them to get their permission. But of course, I can't find them. And so there are these hundreds of millions, billions of work of copyrighted works being created by people who actually don't mean to restrict their uh, use and who'd be perfectly happy to share them. And then they go out into the world and their our rights over them are ambiguous. Can I put this in my course pack? Can I excerpt your example? Can I use your photo? Can I print it in a book? The answer is we don't know. So if I just, you know, like write a a haiku or something, it's automatically copyrighted? It's automatically copyrighted. And that might not seem like a problem. You go, hey, it's on Nora's blog, and there's no problem there. There's no difficulty. But there is, in fact. And and one example is uh, in the realm of educational uh, works. If you think about... You know, teachers are constantly creating syllabi, students have course notes and so forth. And many of them would be delighted for those to be available for sort of remix, right? To combine them, take this portion of this this lesson, this portion of this lesson, put them together, have some new illustrations maybe taken from a, a third source. But of course, if we have to go back and contact all these individual people, we frequently can't find them. And it's often incredibly um, arduous. And so we have copyright sort of intruding into a realm where it frequently is just not wanted. I mean, if people want to control their stuff, that's great. And I fully support their right to do so. But if they don't, then we ought to make it just as easy for them to share as we make it for them to lock things up. And right now we have this, we're all focused on the danger of piracy. Not as many people are focusing on the dangers of failed sharing. And that's, that's one of the things I'm trying to point to in the book. Failed sharing? Failed sharing. There's there's a lot of failed sharing. Copyright is not supposed to set up barriers to sharing. It's supposed to let you decide the terms under which you want to share. Yeah, you can make my movie if a movie out of my novel if you pay me X dollars. That's great. That's a really good system. That's the way it's supposed to work. But what about when it simply becomes this kind of arcane system that the people working under don't understand, and it ends up putting barriers to the sharing of work, whether it's for educational purposes, for science? Um, that's the kind of thing that we ought to be just as worried about as we're worried about you know, the notion that people are illicitly downloading Britney Spears songs. There, there are legitimate concerns in both, but, but uh, we ought to worry about the failed sharing part, and instead our legislators are worrying only about the illicit copying part. You use a bunch of examples in your book to illustrate this idea, but I think the one that was most sort of compelling to me was the story that you tell about the Ray Charles song, I Got a Woman. Tell me about that. Well, I got interested in this when I heard, after the Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, I heard this protest song, uh, which was called George Bush Don't Care About Black People, um, made by a 
group of uh, two guys who were volunteering in the Houston Astrodome. It turned out they were um, hip-hop artists, and um, they were very upset by both the inaction of the federal government as they saw it, but also of the coverage. They decided to write a protest song. Kanye West had famously gone on TV and uttered the words, George Bush doesn't care about black people. They took his most recent song, uh, Gold Digger, and uh, they changed, they, they produced a new set of words. And I thought it would be interesting to trace the all of the components that went to make that song. And so in one of my chapters, I take... I trace it back. So, of course, Kanye West, it turns out, had borrowed from Ray Charles. And Ray Charles, it turns out, had borrowed from an earlier spiritual. Um, uh, instead of I Got a Woman, he took uh, a song probably by Clara Ward, played by the Bailey Gospel Singers, called I Got a Savior. And by combining these two things, this the sort of the lyricism of, of gospel and the eroticism of the blues, um, he creates this new genre called soul. And so just going backwards, you see how each of these artists had built on material that others had provided. That's, and in many cases, they actually, in, in some cases, Charles is an example, they actually built a new musical form by doing it. And it's only now, only with Kanye West, that we thought, oh, and you have to get permission and you have to pay licensing fees. And so my question in the book is, okay, supposing you took today's rule, rules and played them back, would we have got... Um, soul, would we have got that song, uh, I Got a Woman? Would we have got all of these developments? And I think the answer is no, or at least we would have gotten them in very different forms. Uh, and so my question is, if that's true, if the rules that we have now would have stultified some of the greatest musical <laughs> advances that we look back at in our collective culture, why on earth would we think that they are going to yield good results in the future? Would they have the same stultifying effect? Of course, we won't know the music that we aren't listening to, right, because it won't be there. Uh, but I think it's a really cautionary tale. Just to clarify, if I own copyright of this haiku that's on my blog, and I am not aware that I own copyright of this, and somebody uses it, and I don't care if they use it, I don't have a problem with it, aren't I the one who has to sue them? You're the one who has to sue them. That's not a problem. And if you're not going to sue them, obviously it's fine. Just as you can let someone come into your house, you can obviously allow someone to use your material. And if you're not going to do anything, it's fine. The difficulty comes in situations of uncertainty. So, for example, if you go to uh, a library and you're not an accredited researcher and you say, okay, I want to see this film from 1950. It's not commercially available. Um, there's no other way of doing it. The librarian will frequently say, I'm sorry, I can't show that to you. It's still under copyright. Now, the odds are, right, that there's no possible objection here. They, they certainly, you know, this this the, this film not being made anywhere, it's not commercially available. Who could possibly object to you being able to see it, for you being uh, perhaps able to, able to do a, a screening? But the point is the library can't take the risk because copyright's what's called a strict liability system. So even if, you know, a reasonable person would have thought, well, it doesn't seem like there's any indication anyone would mind. And if anyone does, then we'll stop doing it immediately. That's not the way the system works. The system says, if you do it, you're liable, uh, and there are damages, and in some cases, very, very large damages. And so all of us kind of circumscribe what we do as a result. In the realm of blogs, probably no big deal. Someone can quote your haiku. They're not going to worry about it. But what if they want to put together a collection of... Um, uh, haikus or blog-inspired poetry for the New York public school system, and they want to show, oh, look at all these people who are now making poetry, and some of it's actually pretty good. 
Well, now the publisher's like, okay, well, we need clearances. And you're like, well, I don't even know who this person is. The blog's gone. I can't find it. That's the time where copyright starts to inhibit things because now you have to worry because now more people are seeing it. So it's more the what lawyers call the interorem effect, the fear factor that copyright can introduce that actually stultifies some things which we really ought to be allowing. And that's what some people refer to as a chilling effect. A chilling effect. Failed sharing. So... In efforts to get around all this, you have published this book as well as a novel under a Creative Commons license. Tell me a little bit more about Creative Commons. Sure. Well, the Creative Commons licenses are sort of hacks that private individuals made up in order to um, solve some of these problems. So basically what the license is, is there's few choices you can make. Like, I want to allow anyone to share it in any way they want, so long as they give me attribution, so long as they say, this is by James Boyle. Or you could say, any kind of copying, but not commercial. Or you could say, yeah, you can use it, but reproduce it its entirety. I don't want it remixed. I don't want it changed or a derivative work made. A few simple choices, uh, and the Creative Commons website will give you uh, some tools which allows you to put a license on your work. And the cool part is the license can be read not just by human beings, because there's a nice little deed that summarizes it, so human beings, not just lawyers, can understand it. But it can also be read by computers. So if you go to Google image, image search and click um, advanced options and say, OK, I want photos that I'm free to use and share even commercially, uh, then you can look for photos of skeletons or of the Duke Chapel or Fordham University or whatever it is you want. And these are people who've either put their material in the public domain or used a Creative Commons license. And now when you do it, you know you can use that material and you can use it freely. So it's an attempt to recreate by private action the things that the system used to have when just as automatically, because if you didn't put a copyright on it, then it wasn't copyrighted. So it's a sort of second, uh, a second order way of fixing it. And so by doing this with my book, I've allowed everyone to copy my book freely for non-commercial purposes. And my publisher, Yale University Press, was delighted to do that. You can download it from thepublicdomain.org. Uh, there it is, the book in its entirety, exactly as it was printed. Um, and by sharing it, I actually think that I've gained many more readers, including readers who end up going out and buying the actual book. I'll close with this question. Um, in a world where you could control these things, what would you like to see happen with copyright law? I'd like to see copyright law return to its sensible minimalist roots. How long do the rights actually need to be? We have some pretty good empirical evidence of what most people use. Um, we could say we'll have a pretty short copyright term that you can renew at a modest fee. I'd like to see us pay attention by doing actual empirical research to what actually encourages innovation. Every other realm of policy, let's say if you want to have a new emission standard in environmental law, or if you want to introduce a new zoning uh, uh, standard, you actually have to provide empirical evidence that this will produce a good result. Right? You analyze whether the drug will work. In copyright and patent, we make uh, policy based on faith, and I'm, I'm against faith-based faith -based initiatives in this context. So I'd like to make it based on evidence. I'd like it to be minimalist, that is to say, make only the monopolies that we need to. Uh, and I'd like us to look at it as something which is based on a balance, a balance between the public domain and the realm of the protected. And right now, we've kind of forgotten that balance. We're so focused on more property, more property, more property. We've forgotten that the realm of the free, the realm of the open, also has incredible value for our culture and our science. James Boyle is the author of The Public Domain, Enclosing the Commons of the Mind from Yale University Press. James Boyle, thanks so much. Thank you. 
This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Ahead this morning on Cityscape, a look at some of the city's public art. That's Cityscape with George Bodarchy this morning at 7.30 on WFUV. But first, we can talk all day about the legal and ethical ramifications of intellectual property law. But our heads aren't really going to be in it if we've been kept up all night by a mosquito buzzing in our ear. This observation is especially poignant right now because the wet weather has left us with a pretty mosquito-heavy summer. I spoke earlier this week with Tom Daniels. He's an associate research scientist at Fordham's Lewis Calder Biological Field Station in Westchester, and he's an expert on mosquitoes. I asked Daniels to come in and talk with me about how this situation arose and how we can avoid it ruining our summer. So we know it's been raining a real lot, and that does seem to make a lot more mosquitoes. Why is that? You know, the mosquito starts life out as, a, as an aquatic form. The female will take a blood meal, and then she'll lay her eggs on the surface of the water or, or in some depression just above the water line. And when the eggs hatch out, those aquatic larvae feed in the water for days to weeks, depending on the temperature. And so more water means more potential breeding sites, and ultimately that can translate into more mosquitoes. They're certainly annoying, certainly, but should we really be worried about mosquitoes transmitting diseases and things? Yeah, you know, there are a number of mosquitoes around here that do transmit some diseases. Um, you may remember back 10 years ago in 1999, we had an outbreak of West Nile virus. It was the first time it was in the country. The first cases were in New York, and so there was a bit of a panic. Um, but it's not the only mosquito-borne disease. There are a number of others. They, they generally tend to be relatively... Um, low in number on any given year, but but mosquitoes do routinely transmit things that can make us sick. I don't want to say do we really need to be careful, but is it as bad as we seem to think it is? No, generally speaking, it isn't. Um, even when the um, West Nile outbreak occurred back in 1999, um, the infection rate in mosquitoes was less than 5%. So the odds are that any individual mosquito that bites a person is not infected with anything. Um, it's only under generally certain circumstances that um, infection rates can be relatively high in a, in a small area, and that's generally when, when we have a, a greater risk of, of encountering disease. But for the most part, they're more a nuisance than anything else, but we also want to make sure that people understand that there is some risk, um, and it tends to be higher at certain times of year than others. So what can we do, both in terms of you know, minimizing mosquito populations and also in terms of protecting ourselves? You know, most people are bitten uh, largely around their homes. And so with lots of mosquitoes, we make it a point to tell people that if there are any containers that are holding water outside the home um, that are not necessary, you should tip them and get, get the water out of there. And what you're doing is taking away a potential breeding site. Um, another thing we tell people to do is make sure that the screens in their houses are, are in good working order. It's a lot easier to, to prevent yourself from uh, prevent being bitten by keeping mosquito out of the home than in. And um, there are times of the day when you're a little bit more at risk than others. Dusk and dawn, for example, are times when mosquitoes tend to be active. And if people are going to be out that time of day, they should consider the use of repellents. The repellents do work. Um, thinking about this, we always think like, oh, they're such a terrible pest. I can't stand mosquitoes. Is there any upside to a big mosquito year? Um, you know, it's good for bats. Lots of bats eat lots of mosquitoes. And so 
you know, they do play a role in in, in nature, and there there is a place for them in in the the web of life. And so there are things to take advantage of their presence. There are there are predators and mosquitoes um, in the in the aquatic form, and as we mentioned, there are these uh, are animals that will will hunt them down um, when they're adults. Okay, this last question is just out of curiosity. My husband gets very very bitten in the <laughs> summer. Whereas they don't really bother me all that much, especially when he's around. I have heard that some people have sweeter blood than others. Why do mosquitoes go for some people more than others? And why are some of us so much more bothered by their bites than others? Um, To take the last part first, um, you know, how bothered you are by the bite is a function of your own immune system. Typically when the mosquito bites, it's pumping saliva into into the wound to sort of keep blood flowing for at least for a little bit. And those products um, alert the immune system that there's a problem. And so some of us have a, a more of, a, of a, a, a response to that kind of invasion than others. As far as um, sweet blood, yes, we've all heard that. And, and, you know, that's sort of the common description for what happens. But it, it's a real phenomenon. There are some people who get bitten lots more than others. And it's not a question of sweet blood so much as a question of the chemicals that they have on their skin. We all break down every food item that comes into our body, everything we drink gets broken down through metabolism, and a lot of these chemicals make their way to the surface of our skin. Probably over, over 300 or so different kinds of chemicals are exuded by us. Lots of those are attractive to mosquitoes. They've evolved a system to detect these chemicals because it's a, it's a great indicator of a potential blood meal. There's a host there. Something's breaking down food items. Um, it's probably alive, and if it's alive, it probably has blood. And if it has blood, it's not a bad place to be. And so, it's really a function of our own metabolism as as to how attractive we are. Sometimes it's just not good to be attractive um, because mosquitoes can really take advantage. They can hone in on a lot of these different chemicals. Well, Tom Daniels is an associate research scientist at Fordham's Lewis Calder Center in Westchester. Tom, thanks so much. You bet. Thanks very much. From WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, this has been Fordham Conversations. You can find our podcast at WFUV.org. You can also listen to past shows in our audio archives at that same address. You can email us at FordhamConversations at WFUV.org. We would, of course, love to hear from you. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thank you for listening, and have a great weekend.